Hello, thanks for checking out the Reefer Madness podcast that we have lined up for you. Uh, this is another great one. Um, and, and the topic itself is, is about pardoning and expunging uh, criminal records based on simple possession, um, especially for certain groups of, of people. And uh, so the, the, the show was produced and, and ready to be released. So then yesterday, October the 6th, uh, the Associated Press came out with uh, some news that was relevant. So I thought I'd just quickly go over that before we get into the show. The headline is, Biden pardons thousands of Americans convicted of simple possession of pot. They go on to say, U.S. President Joe Biden is pardoning thousands of Americans convicted of simple possession of marijuana under federal U.S. law as his administration takes a dramatic step toward decriminalizing the drug and addressing charging practices that disproportionately impact people of color. And uh, in, a, in a statement, Biden said that the move reflects his position that no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. And, uh, and I bring that up because that really is timely as we get into this episode of Reefer Madness, the podcast. It's Reefer Madness, the podcast with Trevor and Kirk. Kirk, we're back. <laughs> we're back. Hey, Trevor. We're, like summer's summer's over. Where you where you been? <laughs> where you been? Summer's done. Uh, yeah, I know. It seems to have flown right on by. Uh, got a little fishing trip in, but yeah, honestly, I spent most of the summer round off and a couple trips out to Saskatoon to see my daughter. Couple trips out to Pinawa to see my parents, but uh, mostly dolphin. Yeah, yeah, I've been uh, putzing around picking a lot of apples. A cider thing, or what's it going to turn into? Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, well, it wasn't a very good year for bees, uh, so um, I didn't get as much honey as I usually get, but I got a lot of a lot of apples, bumper crop for apples. So I've been picking apples, and I even went down to the Morden. Uh, corn, corn and, and apple, apple festival. festival. Yeah, and I, I wanted to stop in and see one of our past uh, guests. That would have been Mark Hendrick from episode 70. Can a junkie drop heroin making cannabis his new heroin? And he sent me a message. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, he has completely dropped. He's completely dropped heroin. He's off of... Uh, he is off of um, the methadone, Suboxone. He's tapered off Suboxone. And he was using uh, Kryptom and cannabis, cannabis oil to get off. So he's, he's now living, living off opiates completely and using cannabis. So that's an update on episode 70. Good. Kind of cool. I hope, and I hope things are still going well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, shout out to, uh, to Mark. Shout out to Mark there. So then I've been trying to get this one, this episode here on Cannabis Amnesty Forever. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you've been talking about Cannabis Amnesty Forever, and my apologies, they're a fantastic group. Do you know how hard, I, I'm usually a pretty good speller, I cannot spell amnesty. I, I have to, it, it, look it up every time. I yeah. can't do it. I've got a block. Well, I, I'm, I'm not the best speller, but how I spell amnesty is that there's a nest in the middle of it. So that's how I remember it, yeah. So cannabis amnesty, I mean, as a nurse, the Canadian Nursing Association has been speaking about this forever. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, back in the day when cannabis was illegal, for those people that remember that, uh, the, the police spent a lot of time, you know, and, and um, uh, Aisha, our guest, speaks to this. They spent a lot of time 
bothering people for cannabis and it always seemed to be uh, marginalized people that got busted, right? So the Canadian Nursing Association figured that um, cannabis laws uh, were impacting people significantly. There was more than like in 2013, uh, each year, uh, Canada spent more than a billion dollars to enforce cannabis possession and laws, arresting more than 60,000 people for simple possession in 2013, and at least 500,000 people carry a criminal charge for the offense. So, you know, we spent a lot of money on cannabis uh, enforcement, you know, just say no. And finally, 2018, the Trudeau government figured, you know, let's get rid of this. Uh, but what they forgot is they forgot about those 500,000 people that are sitting out there for a record uh, having a criminal record for a substance that now is legal. Yeah, and uh, I well, there's lots of things I liked about what Aisha said, but you know, she starts off with uh, true amnesty for those with a cannabis criminal record, and as she gets into, that's not as easy as you think. It's not like I said off camera. It's not like a click of a click of a mouse, and you know, it's all gone away. It's it's more complicated than you'd think. And she goes into, and for our American listeners, I don't know if you use this term, so I'll, I'll use it now and then define it. So uh, BIPOC, so in Canada, we talk about that being black, indigenous, and people of color. Uh, so we'll call it racialized BIPOC people. Um, it's a bigger deal than like unfortunately everything else in law enforcement and, and healthcare and, and, and racialized people, it's a, uh, it's definitely a bigger deal. She talks about how much more likely you are to be, were to have been arrested for simple cannabis possession. If you are an identifiable person of color um, there, yeah, there, I, I learned, I learned a lot from this one. On cannabis amnesty.ca they have a very simple webpage the organization Um, they say here nine times more indigenous people are arrested for cannabis so yeah there's definitely a color a color uh screen lenses that go into you know law enforcement and i think that's anywhere white privilege is you know sometimes we forget about our 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 white privilege and i don't know if i discussed this with you within the podcast but there's an ex- example of Michelle and I. Uh, we spent February, March, and April out on the West Coast, Vancouver Island, traveling around in Van Hoop, visiting people. And there was a point of time where Michelle and I are walking the inner harbor of Victoria. We had a few drinks. Um, I had a couple. I had a couple of hoots. So I was I was high, and I was obviously feeling my liquor. And Michelle and I are you know we're people of an age. <clears throat> we're doing our walking around the inner harbor, and. We had to use the toilet. So we walk into one of the, you know, one of the harbor um, upper five star hotels and we walk in and, you know, we weren't obviously stumbling around, but we walked in as if we owned the place and went and used the facilities and walked out. And as I was walking out, I looked over at Michelle and I said, was that an example of white privilege? Here we are, you know, enjoying ourselves. We're obviously under the influence of something and we just stumbled in and used a bathroom how would that have been for a person of color would they have been stopped i mean there was security so i wonder you know and aisha i guess we haven't introduced her yet she'll introduce herself but she mentions how you know back in the day law enforcement would use cannabis and bother people of color just to bother them yeah 
Um, yeah, no, she, you know, she explains that far better than we do. But let's just another number, and we'll talk about this more afterwards. You mentioned it, but it's just worth mentioning again. 500,000 people in Canada have some sort of, we'll call it cannabis conviction, sort of sitting over their heads right now for for a substance that is currently not illegal. So, you know, if they're trying to get a job, if they're trying to volunteer at their kid's school, if they're trying to get a passport, you know, this keeps coming up and keeps getting them in the way of sort of going about a normal life for something that if they did today would not be illegal at all. So so that's that's my understanding of the big reason why cannabis amnesty is is around. Yeah, no, they're, and they're there to help people out. Um, before we start, we should do a couple. There, as I was talking to her, there was a, some terminology we need to sort of look through here. Um, we, I talked to her about pardons versus suspensions. Okay. Um, so what I'm looking at, I'm looking at Canada.ca, the public safety webpage, and this is Bill C-93. And what I understand is that, uh, and uh, also looking at uh, Canada, CanadianLegal.org, so it's a legal organization, it's basically a pardon and a record suspension are the same thing. Okay. So in the terminology of as we go forward in this interview, uh, I don't know if that's fully explained, but a pardon and a record suspension are the same thing. The difference between an expungement so it says here, what is the difference between, this is on the public safety, uh, Canada.ca, English Public Safety Canada news, news feed. Uh, what is the difference between a pardon and an expungement? The purpose of a pardon is to reduce barriers to reintegration by facilitating access to job opportunities, educational program, housing, and even the ability to simply volunteer for charitable organizations. Under federal jurisdiction, the effect of a pardon is fully protected by the Canadian Human Rights Act. Federally suspended criminal records can only be disclosed by the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness in exceptional circumstances and would not normally be disclosed when background checks are conducted, such as employment, housing, and or passport. Now, an expungement is an extraordinary measure reserved for cases where the criminalization of the activity in question and the law never should have existed, such as in cases that violate the Charter. For example, I think why cannabis amnesty is asking for expungement is that because the, the Cannabis Act now makes cannabis legal, people that had records beforehand it should never have happened. So that's why they're looking for an expungement. Yeah, right. and uh, Aisha goes into that more. So how about we'll let Aisha talk, and then we'll we'll give our amateur legal analysis at the end. Fair enough. My name is Aisha Abuaji. I am currently working this summer as a Toki Fellow with Cannabis Amnesty, a not-for-profit organization that advocates for the rights um, of individuals who have been historically wronged by decades of cannabis prohibition. So T Toki is the uh, one of the organizations that sponsored this fellowship. Um, this is the first year this fellowship has um, been in place with Cannabis Amnesty. Uh, yeah, and so I'm very excited to be a part of this great project that will hopefully continue for many years to come. So I am studying at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law at the Toronto Metropolitan University, and I am headed to my second year of law school in September. 
I, from a young age, I think I've been very interested um, and quite fascinated by the ways in which society is structured um, and particularly the ways in which some individuals are marginalized and disadvantaged um, at the expense um, and privilege of others. Uh, and just seeing that the way that played out in my life and in my communities, um, I got involved in advocacy work to you know, kind of try to make a difference for the people in my lives and the people around me um, and do the little things that I could to make um, our lives a bit better. Uh, and as I've gone through that over the years, I've learned more and more about this systemic problem um, within all of it. Um, and that we need systemic solutions to these systemic problems that have existed for years and will continue existing for years if we do not actively engage with, are aware of, um, and work to dismantle. That's where you want to take your law degree, is in advocacy? I really do. I think law is one avenue in which um, our society is structured upon and the ways in which power um, is able to continue existing and be um, utilized um, by folks who do have um, wealth, I think is a big thing. So, um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot in my first year, you know, criminal law, tort law, property law, and a lot of it really is about who has access to justice and who's able to afford a lawyer to take your case to court and go through the many years that it takes to bring um, a trial or case to justice. And the reality is most people don't have that opportunity. Um, and so, I want to think about and figure out how we can maybe change the law to create more opportunities for people um, to get their justice and also really think about what does justice actually mean and who is getting the justice and who's benefiting from our justice system. So you are first year, first year law student. Yeah, so I'll be going to my second year. And do you have an entry degree? Do you have a degree already? Yeah, so I graduated from Dalhousie University um, with a Bachelor of Applied Computer Science um, and a minor in Political Science. Congratulations. So you have a summer job. Sounds like a cool job for you in Cannabis, cannabis Amnesty. Can you, can you give me a little bit of a lowdown on the organization? What's the goals of the organization? Yeah, so Cannabis Amnesty is fighting for true amnesty for individuals who have a cannabis record. Um, and so true amnesty to us means that it is permanent, um, it is free, and the record is expunged. Uh, and so, you know, since cannabis has been legalized about four years ago, um, not a lot of thought, I think, on the government side have been has been put into the consequences of what those individuals who've previously been um, saddled with a cannabis conviction um, are able to um, benefit from now that cannabis is legal, you know? Um, and it's, you know, it's simple cannabis possession for the most part, but these individuals are dealing with huge collateral consequences, whether that be access to um, employment opportunities, traveling across the border to the US, um, being able to volunteer for organizations, um, even parental rights can be impacted um, by having a cannabis uh, conviction. And so 
individuals today are being punished for a crime that is no longer illegal or uh, activity. It's not a crime anymore. So an activity that's no longer illegal. And we at Cannabis Amnesty um, believe that it's important that we right this wrong, especially when we think about the disproportionate impact that racialized Black and Indigenous communities, um, as well as other marginalized communities, um, have been historically overrepresented in cannabis arrests. Follow up with that. Go a little deeper. How do you mean that? In what regard? Yeah, so, you know, the stats are pretty clear. Um, there is excessive and punitive laws that disproportionately harm Black and Indigenous communities. Um, throughout the criminal justice system, we see that specifically low-income Canadians and Black and Indigenous communities are more likely to be stopped, more likely to be searched, arrested, prosecuted, and incarcerated for cannabis possession offenses. Um, and we know through the data that Canadians across the board um, have been using cannabis at equal rates. Um, and yet in Vancouver, Indigenous people are nearly seven times more likely to be arrested for cannabis possession. Um, in Halifax, where I'm from, Black folks are four times more likely to be arrested um, for possession. Um, in Regina, Indigenous people are nine times more likely to be arrested for possession. And in Toronto, Black people are three times more likely to be arrested um, for the possession of cannabis. Interesting about how you, at language, um, is this still happening or is this past records? Is, are people still being arrested for cannabis charges? Uh, so for the simple possession of cannabis, no, those are, um, that has been with the uh, Cannabis Act um, decriminalized. Um, so these would be, the, yes, the historic um, numbers um, before. Okay. So, so these, these are the clients that you're, you're wrestling with now, people you're working with now. Yeah. So these are the people exactly who we work with, who are dealing with the collateral consequences of a cannabis conviction. So let, let's go back a bit then before we go to legalization. Do, do you have any statistics on the amount of money was spent by governments before legalization? Like cannabis was considered one of the top criminal activities, was it not? Um, yeah, so I don't have much numbers around specifically the money of government, but I do have some numbers around um, what arrests were looking like and how how the um, enforcement of our cannabis laws were going. Um, so the Narcotics Act of 1961 made cannabis a Schedule One offense, um, and at that point. Um, stricter penalties were being um, put in place for cannabis possession. Um, so that would be seven years of imprisonment um, for possession um, and then up to life for supplying and trafficking and other related offenses. Um, so that by 1990s, we um, estimate that over 500,000 Canadians had criminal records um, related to cannabis. Um, and under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which is what we um, have around today, um, nearly 60,000 Canadians are arrested annually or were arrested annually um, for simple cannabis possession in the past uh, 15 years. And the police report that they had 800,000 cannabis possession incidents um, in those years. So... The numbers do clearly show that um, you know, the government put a lot of effort and energy and um, money into the enforcement um, of cannabis 
convictions and offenses. Right. Okay. So explain to me what, what, were, what were people being charged with? Usually what happens is they get charged with a couple of different uh, offenses and usually a couple of them get dropped and they, and they are convicted on one or two. Do you have any, any stories on how that worked? Were they charged on a couple different and they would drop them? What was the typical conviction, I guess? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't have any stories that I'm aware of or my own personal stories, but I have heard through working with the folks at Cannabis Amnesty um, about this concept of the magical joint in which police um, would see individuals, you know, young racialized folks, um, interact with them. And then um, somewhere in the record, you know, once they've been like either arrested or convicted, or it was just a, you know, a stop and search, um, somewhere in the record, cannabis um, would come up as a reason for why, um, the police interacted with these individuals in the first place. Um, and then later, when you look into the actual police files and records of what was kept, um, you wouldn't find any cannabis anywhere. And so it was um, often used as a reason to engage with it. It'd be like the smell of cannabis. We you know, smelled in the car or, you know, he saw someone smoking and it like looked like cannabis. And so um, it was often used as a, pretense or reason to engage with individuals and start that police interaction. And once a police interaction starts, um, it can escalate very quickly. And, you know, individuals um, are often taken to um, the jail, can't afford the bail, are now spending a night um, there and have to deal with all this legal um, mess that they necessarily might necessarily not be able to afford a lawyer to then come in um, and support them through it. Maybe a little bit law 101, a summary conviction versus a criminal record. What are all the different types of convictions you can have for cannabis? What is a summary conviction, for example? <laughs> You're taking me back to my... Law 101. Because <laughs> <laughs> are people not charged with a criminal record when they were busted for cannabis? So a criminal record you would get when you are convicted of the crime. And so that would be... Um, cannabis possession, which was a schedule one um, offense at the time um, before cannabis was legalized. And so that would show up on, on your record as like a simple cannabis possession. Um, I can't remember exactly how many grams that would be. Um, but in terms of the way a person is um, convicted, so first you'd be convicted, go through the trial. Oftentimes people plead guilty because they think it's easier or like, you know, their um, legal aid lawyer might tell them it's just easier to like take the charge and not have to go through a lengthy trial. Um, and so a summary conviction usually is not, um, someone isn't arrested in that case um, and they're just given notice to appear in court on a certain date and time. Um, and then an indictable offense is a more serious offense. Um, and so that would proceed with someone um, being arrested with the um, indictable offense and then going through that whole process um, of the court having to apply for bail and all those, all that stuff. Um, and then a hybrid offense is kind of the mix between the two. And so with a hybrid offense, the prosecutor can choose based on various factors in the situation, how to proceed with it, either as a summary conviction um, or an indictable offense. Okay. So, a, but a summary conviction is still a criminal record? Yeah. So a summary conviction, um, you'd have that record um, in your, in, uh, in a police record. Um, and then if you were um, 
found found guilty of the crime, that's when your criminal record would um, show that you have been um, convicted of the crime. Okay, so am I using the terms wrong? Summary conviction versus indictable offense? Yeah, so I guess an offense um, is an offense is the activity that you would have um, allegedly been um, accused of committing. Um, and so you're charged with that offense. Okay. Um, it's until proven guilty, it's not a conviction um, until at the very end when the judge rules. So Cannabis Amnesty estimates that there's a half a million Canadians with a criminal record of cannabis possession. Right. Simple possession. Not, we're not talking about dealers here. We're not talking about any of that. It's just simple conviction, a, a simple possession. That's five hundred, a half million people. Yeah, an estimated 500. So now this limits their activity. That limits what they can do for their world. So, for example, with a criminal record, people cannot travel, I guess, and they can't get certain jobs. Right. So so what is, what is it that... What is it that your organization is trying to do? What's I guess the question is, what is the difference between a suspension, a pardon, and an expunged record? Right. Um, so right now, under um, Bill C-93, um, which um, was implemented through advocacy of Cannabis Amnesty and other um, organizations, um, which allows for the suspension of records. Um, and so a record suspension um, does not permanently delete a record, but it merely sets it aside in its own separate database. Um, and so when a record is suspended, it won't show up on the regular um, criminal background checks that an employer um, or other organization might do, um, but it still does exist somewhere in a database um, and it can still be accessed in certain situations. Um, and I think the most significant thing is that it can be reinstated at a later date. Okay, so what is a pardon? So a pardon is um, similar. I believe it is similar language. Um, so the pardon program um, implements a suspension. Um, and so it's similar language basically around the same thing where it's the record is kept separate and apart from other records um, and it can still be reinstated. And so an expungement, which is what Cannabis Amnesty calls for, is the complete deletion of the record um, in all jurisdictions that it might exist um, so that there is no, no more record existing of this individual with this uh, conviction. Okay, so you're, you bring up, the, you bring up the, uh, the, the concept of when an employer asks for criminal record checks. It seems like every job you apply for now requires a criminal record check and a child abuse registry. So if I had an expunded or pardoned conviction from 20 years ago and I go to an employer and say, I want a job, they say, give us a criminal record check. You go to the local police officer office and you ask for a record check. So if you have a pardon, they, you're, it will come up as unconvicted. Is there anything else or is there another step? Does a, does a flag go up saying that this, this person's birth date met, meets someone else's birth date? Like what's the process of getting that criminal record check if I, if I have a pardoned conviction? Yeah, so um, 
there's really not a lot of clarity around what that process looks like, unfortunately. Um, another step that complicates it is that there is various records for individuals at courthouses, at provincial, at the provincial level and in the individual police um, departments across the country, and then also at the federal level. And so what the pardon does um, and the, this current pardon um, program and regime, what that does, it, it deletes the record or sorry, it um, keeps the records separate and apart at the federal level. And so that's what this um, pardon program does. However, um, although the RCMP would inform the um, you know, federal or the provincial and municipal um, parties of this pardon, um, the way in which it's implemented at the municipal and provincial level is totally up to um, that party. Um, and as well, the records are kept. Like I said, some are in paper file, um, some are in like you know a warehouse stacked on boxes upon boxes, um, and then others are in a electronic electronic database. Uh, and so there really is no clarity around exactly where the record has been deleted, where the record has been kept, um, and so it is on the individual um, to try to understand you know where their records are, where they might have been um, convicted or charged um, and get rid of or attempt to um, have it completely um, pardoned. Um, and at the same time, uh, the U.S. Um, doesn't recognize a Canadian pardon. And so if you're crossing the border to the U.S. and you're asked, have you ever been charged um, or convicted of a crime in Canada, even though you have a Canadian pardon, um, your answer is yes, you have been convicted um, because they don't recognize the pardon and it will be flagged in their system that you were um, convicted of the cannabis charge. Wow, that's that's new to me because um, I'm going I'm going to share a story in regards to um, late 70s. A buddy of mine got busted for cannabis. He was a young lad, uh, 18 years old, got a criminal record, um, went through the process five years later. He got a pardon and he travels the world and he's never had a problem. And every time he crosses a border, he says he has no history of record because when he got his documentation from the federal government, and it would have been 1982, I guess, it said you do not have to declare any, this record's gone, like it's pardon. I mean, it was, it was a legal size piece of paper with a stamp on it. It's almost like a diploma you want to put on the wall. You've been pardoned. It's not something you want to hang on the wall, but it was pretty official looking, but he travels the world. So how's that work? Well, yeah, I've heard stories of other individuals who do take that um, document with them when they travel and show that to um, border officers. I've also um, pretty recently heard stories actually of individuals who've never had an issue crossing the border until they applied for their pardon recently um, under the um, bill C-93 regime, um, and that's when their issues started occurring, where it was flagged in the system when they traveled to the U.S. that they have a charge or a conviction. Um, and so because, like I said, the databases, you know, there is no single repository of all this information. It's electronicized. It's in paper form. It's in warehouses. It's in courthouses and police stations. Um, so there is no really uniform way this will manifest in Canadians' lives. And so um, yeah. So that's interesting because what I guess what in in this scenario it was 1978, municipal 
police department, so it would have been all paper back then. And then when he did apply for the federal pardon, um, it's wiped out of the federal database. But I imagine if he went back to the medicinal police department, they might have paper on him someplace, even though it's pardoned. Yeah. Whereas an expungement would get rid of all that paper, everything's gone. Yes. So an expungement um, would delete all records, all files, um, and ensure that it never shows up anywhere. It can never be reinstated in the future. Um, courts don't have access to any record whatsoever. Um, and so that will, you know, completely wipe it um, and give you know, many Canadians peace of mind um, in all aspects of their lives okay so so cannabis amnesty is advocating for these people are you do you actually have a storefront are you actually providing legal help and doing the legal legwork for these individuals how do they access your service yeah so right now cannabis amnesty uh, is in the process of launching our pardon clinics um, and so what our pardon clinics would be um, is an individual can come in um, and we would help them go through the entire process from start to finish. Um, you know, even though the, so right now with cannabis um, specifically um, through legalization, um, there was a, you know, a call for the fact that individuals who, you know, have these records, um, but now this, you know, cannabis charge, um, simple cannabis possession has been um, legalized, um, what is to be done with all these individuals who are impacted. Um, and so the government's response to that, I might have mentioned a bit earlier, was Bill C-93, a no-fee expedited pardon for simple possession of cannabis act. Um, and so through that process, um, they were hoping to expedite the pardon process for Canadians. Um, you mentioned earlier, your friend went through the federal pardon process, there is like a lengthy time period, I think it's between three to 10 years, which an individual has to wait after they've paid all of their fees and um, served any sentence that might have been associated with that. Um, and then there's a fee that you have to apply, I think it's about like $631. Um, that is your pardon application fee. Um, and then there's a whole lot of work that you have to do, including going to get these very specific documents um, from the courts and from the police departments um, and from the RCMP. Um, and if you don't have the you know, exact document and it's like official form stamped in the right way, you know, your application can and will be um, rejected um, or deemed incomplete. Um, and so what Bill C-93 um, has created um, is this separate part in process for individuals with cannabis um, convictions. Um, and so they waived that 631 fee. Um, and I believe now it's like a $50 fee instead. Um, and there's no wait time associated with it. Um, but, you know, we at Cannabis Amnesty think that even this process is simply just not enough. First and foremost, um, it does not um, expunge the record. And we talked about why that's pretty important. And um, so we believe, you know, with the fact that possession of cannabis is no longer um, a, a crime, um, you know, expungement um, is the adequate remedy um, for the um, situation. Um, also, even though the fee of 631, which is, you know, to a lot of people, 
a big deal and something that is insurmountable um, for them. There's a lot of ancillary fees, including when you go to get your record and you have to pay each department the different things. Um, so it does come up to, we estimate, $250 um, in order to do your complete um, pardon process from start to finish. Yeah, and so it's also a pretty lengthy process. And if you don't have like a legal, um, legalese mind um, or a lawyer supporting you um, or a legal, legal minded person supporting you, you can potentially do something incorrect and have to go through the entire process again. Um, and we've you know, heard from, you know, from research that many people, the idea of even going through the whole pardon process and what they get out of it, it's just not worth the um, amount of work that's required, the amount of money that's required. And it's just not something people um, are able to do. And so we at Cannabis Amnesty are starting our pardon clinics um, and we'll cover the cost of the pardon, which comes to about $250 for individuals. Um, we will support them from start to finish of the process, getting the correct documents they need, ensuring that you know they know which documents they need. And we like, will go over the application to ensure that everything is in place as it needs to be, to be um, appropriately um, approved by the government um, and hopefully um, support um, by eliminating some of the barriers for individuals who would otherwise not be able to apply for the pardon. Um, and, you know, we at Cannabis Amnesty, we think, you know, the whole regime under Bill C-93, although it is better than what existed before, um, there are still a lot of issues. The government estimates that about 250,000 people are eligible for a um, pardon. And we've only received 852 applications. Um, and I think that's since March of 2022. Um, out of the 250,000 um, people eligible, only 852 have applied. And so clearly there are major barriers preventing individuals from um, being able to access this pardon. Um, and then interestingly enough, from the 852 applications received, only 536 were approved. 310 were deemed incomplete um, and three were approved and then later discontinued. Huh. The government estimates a quarter million and your organization estimates a half million. Where's the disconnect there? Uh, so I think it's the eligibility for a pardon. So that goes back to the whole possession versus other other convictions? Yes. Um, so, right. yeah, it's for simple cannabis possessions. Okay. Um, that this um, Bill C-93 regime and that pardon system would work. And yeah, so it's an estimated around 10,000 to 250,000 are eligible um, for this specific pardon process okay because i okay so that because i had asked up front and it was for so simple possession between ten thousand to two hundred fifty thousand for simple possession the other people that equal the five hundred thousand they might have other convictions associated with it okay fair enough so so yeah so what do you think are the barriers preventing people from applying yeah so i think first the cost um i think 631 dollar application fee um, was a lot and is a lot for some individuals. Um, and when you think about who are the individuals who might have um, cannabis possessions, we talked about it's marginalized individuals, low-income Canadians, Black and Indigenous um, communities. Um, and so this fee is quite substantial. Um, but even with that fee waived, 
um, there are certain documents that you need to um, get, certified criminal records from the RCMP, supporting documents from the police, um, various documents from courts, um, and these are costly um, and constitute another barrier to accessing the application process. Um, and then, like I said, there's a lot of, um, I guess, an, an emotional aspect of it too, where individuals are like, I have to do all of this work, um, you know, and, and, you know, these are individuals who are trying to get their lives back together and, you know, they have lots of things they need to work on and do. Um, and so this whole, pro this lengthy process that they know is going to be lengthy, that they know has a low approval rating, um, going through that entire process to then maybe potentially get a pardon that doesn't necessarily deal with all of the issues related to a criminal conviction to begin with. Um, so some individuals might just not see it as worthwhile um, to do so. Okay. And what are some of the successes you've had as an organization? Yeah, lots. Um, so the Bill C-93, we actually worked with um, you know, the government and we were advocating to um, government on this. Of course, they didn't accept all of our um, recommendations, um, but this is a start. And so we are excited um, for that. Um, we recently launched our um, Legalize Us campaign, which was like an awareness and educational campaign um, to show, share with and show Canadians the um, collateral consequences of um, cannabis and what that means to you know, about 500,000 Canadians um, and bring that to awareness because you know, if people are aware of issues, I think they're more likely to care and more likely to support. Um, and so that's always um, important. Um, we had our expungement campaign, which was a national petition um, that was signed by 10,000 um, Canadians, um, sending it to members of parliaments advocating for expungement. Um, we recently held a town hall on cannabis and racialized justice um, or racial justice um, for industry and so cannabis industry, um, talking to them about ways in which the industry can support um, racial justice and social justice as like a fundamental part of the um, cannabis industry. Um, so yeah, we um, are the Toki Fellows. So my fellowship right now is like the work um, the Cannabis Amnesty put behind creating a paid internship um, designated to create economic opportunities for individuals harmed um, or communities harmed by decades of cannabis prohibition. Um, we're also working on developing our Cannabis Amnesty Alliance, which is a call to action targeting prospective employers um, to specifically um, not consider criminal records um, of cannabis convictions when they are hiring and to um, be part of the alliance and be part of organizations that will not look at a record um, for cannabis possession as a um, reason not to hire someone. Okay. And how does someone access your services? Now you're in Toronto, but if I'm in Victoria or Halifax, how do I access your services? Yeah. So the pardon clinics specifically are still um, in the development phase right now. We are hoping to uh, launch within 2023. Um, and so there will be one, you know, our main clinic would be in our offices um, in Toronto. We're on um, Queen and Dufferin. Um, and so individuals can come there. We're also hoping to have a, another um, 
office, I believe in Winnipeg is where our second office would be, um, um, to help the community in that part of the country. Um, and so we have, um, sorry, let me get the correct email for you. I believe it is pardons at cannabisamnesty.ca. Um, and so individuals can shoot an email there um, to get more information about once our services are inactive. Um, okay. Is there anything I didn't ask you? Is there anything you want to uh, bring forward that I have not asked? Um, yeah, I think um, just really recognizing uh, the disproportionate impact that cannabis um, prohibition has had on the lives of Black and Indigenous and low-income Canadians, um, and just the way that continues to propel um, systemic disadvantages um, within society and within families and within communities. Um, and so I think it's really important that when we think about cannabis um, legalization and these individuals who have been left behind by the Canadian government um, to think about it as not just a, um, an issue of, uh, for just individuals in general, um, but is specifically uh, a very racialized issue where racialized individuals have been dealing with the brunt um, of the prohibition around cannabis. Um, and I think everyone has a voice and everyone um, can, you know, call, email, write a letter to their local MP asking for full expungement for cannabis records. Um, I just think it's, it's not fair that we today can, you know, enjoy um, you know, walking down to our local cannabis store and consuming cannabis. And there's still lots and lots and lots of Canadians who are dealing with the many consequences of having a um, criminal record and being in the system, um, in the police systems um, because of it. Okay, Kirk, uh, lots of things surprised me about this one and feel free to, to jump in. Um, we mentioned off the top, it's worth mentioning again, in Vancouver, if you're Indigenous, you were seven times more likely to be arrested for cannabis possession. Halifax, Black, four times more likely. Regina, Indigenous, nine times more likely. Toronto, Black, three times more likely. Like it's, you know, two, two old white guys talking about white privilege, but uh, white privilege, it's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. And it's more and more obvious, and especially when it comes to the law. I mean, how many times... How many times do you, uh, you know, as I walk home, as you know, Michelle and I walk all over town. Dauphin is what, two kilometers by two kilometers, two miles by two miles as a small town. So we walk everywhere and we have never been bothered. You know, as we walk down the street, we go visit you guys. We visit, we visit friends on the south side of town. We walk down the street. Michelle and I are never bothered. So is that, are we never, and I mean, and we are, I mean, we're walking because we like to exercise, but we're walking because we are indulging in, in substances that we shouldn't be driving. So as we're walking down the street animated and talking to each other after a good evening, we're not bothered. So, and, and in fairness, Michelle, you're kind of making it sounds like the two of you are walking around drunk and stoned all the time. I've seen you many no, times no. walking when you are, when you're not inebriated no, no, no. anyway. No, of course, but you know, two o'clock in the morning, you're yes. walking home from a, and you're, and you're, and you've had a good dinner and you've had a good visit and you've, you've obviously, you know, should not be driving. 
you know, RCMP have driven past us. We've never been bothered. Now, is that white privilege? Is that because I'm not carrying a stone and I don't have a Molotov cocktail in my hand? I don't know. But I wonder, you know, it, it makes you wonder. So when you hear these statistics, other peoples are bothered. And it's, it's a shame that that happens. Yes. So, uh, and you mentioned this up top too, and she went into more detail, uh, suspension slash pardon. So this surprised me. I'm not a legal expert at all. So, so it, I'm going to use the word pardon. So you're, you don't have a, your criminal record didn't exactly disappear. It just kind of got moved to a different database from the way she was explaining it. And if we have angry lawyers out there saying that's not right, call us. We'd love to talk to you about it. But, uh. So it just got moved to a different database. So, you know, if I apply for a job, the regular criminal records check that they do when I apply for a job, it doesn't come up because it's on a different different database. But I was also a little surprised that, there, that I'm not saying there isn't or there isn't supposed to be sort of a central database of all of these things, but it also sounds like it's a... Maybe not the best organized system where you can have paper files somewhere. You could have them in a police station, in a warehouse. You could have electronic versions. So even just um, finding to remove them or move them into a different database can be can be logistically difficult. Well, yeah, and you think about the process, and again, you know, we're not experts, but just, you know, I'm thinking about the scenario I give in, when I talk to her. Um, you know, 18-year-old guy gets busted in Saanich, British Columbia, which is has its own medicinal police force. So, you know, that, that police force has a record. That police department has a record of that engagement with that individual. That individual goes to a provincial court or the provincial courthouse charged with a federal crime. So, you know, the federal, the federal database has you as having been convicted. Um, and I went back and also looked up the difference between um, uh, a difference between an indictable and summary conviction. And back in the day, cannabis possession is a summary conviction. Uh, so a summary charge, not an indictable charge. So that's something I also discovered in further research. But... Um, what happens is that you've got that you've got that summary charge by the Sanders Police Department. You've gone to a provincial courthouse with a federal record. So all those jurisdictions have a copy, paper, digital. So my understanding is a federal pardon just eliminates the federal database, not necessarily the municipality or the province. Not necessarily. It may, it should, but it doesn't necessarily happen. Yeah, and Aisha's talked about that. That is one of the things that uh, Canada's Amnesty is sort of fighting for is, you know, if when these things get pardoned slash expunged, I'll get into the difference in a second, um, trying to get all these different levels to agree on, you know, where the record is and to really, really remove it. So, so Aisha talked about it, but one more time, Kirk. So, so pardon, it didn't really go away, and she pardon slash suspension, and she also said could theoretically also be reinstated. Uh, it just goes into a different database, but expungement is what? It goes away completely? An expungement, it's a, according to the definition I have on Canada.ca Public Safety Canada news feed, Bill, this is Bill C-93, what is the difference between 
pardon an expungement. Expungement is an extraordinary measure reversed for cases where the criminalization of the activity in question and the law never should have existed, such as in the case where it violates the charter. If the applicant for expungement is ordered, records of that conviction are permanently destroyed from federal databases federal databases so it may not be it may not be expunged from the city police department that you were that you had the original interaction with okay and now because i've seen ads on tv you know do you have a criminal record you know let pardon services manitoba or whatever the uh, some company name uh help you get your pardon so you can do things like travel but aisha mentioned that just because you get a pardon for something doesn't necessarily mean that, say, the U.S. is going to recognize that. Yeah. Which, you know, kind of goes against why I would get a, you know, not not that travel is necessarily the biggest reason to get it. You know, I assume employment's the biggest reason to get it. But, you know, travel's a significant reason why you might want to get a pardon. And so just because you're pardoned in Canada doesn't necessarily mean that places like the U.S. are going to recognize that. And so defeats the purpose is a little too strong. But, yeah, you go through all the trouble and expense of getting a pardon and it might not help anyway. Well, and this again, going back to the reference Canada.ca public safety uh, news, uh, the question is, how does pardon impact an individual's ability to travel? Well, here's the, here's the government's answer. As with expungement, and this is interesting, right? They, they throw that caption, as with, but they don't, there's nowhere in the document talks about it. But anyways, as with expungement, a pardon does not guarantee a person's entry or visa privilege to another country because the foreign jurisdictions are not bound by Canadian law. Entry and exit requirements are at the discretion of each country. So any foreign country, including the United States, may have documented previous interactions with the individual, which may include an individual's Canadian criminal record. Well, when, re when required by foreign border officials, these individuals will be able to provide the required documents. So if I read, in, if I read into here, if you have a Canadian pardon, and you want to travel, you may want to take the document. Well, not may, you will provide the documents when you enter, enter the border, the border crossing. So, you know, I use this. But Aisha said some people weren't having any problems at all until <laughs> now. We're not trying to tell people yeah, break yeah, the yeah. law, but they weren't having any problems at all until they said, hey, I'm going to be do the right yeah. thing and show the border guard my pardon thing. And now they suddenly start having now, problems. Yeah, because the flag goes up. It's 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 all rather confusing. Right. And and of course, didn't didn't America threaten not to allow anybody to cross the border who uh, had any cannabis uh, cannabis business or cannabis conviction back in 2018 when all this legalization was happening? Yeah, to the point that we were talking to people who work for cannabis companies who, you know, had dealings on both sides of the border and they, they officially changed their uh, their business cards to not say I'm a cannabis company, I'm, I'm a biotech company. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it scared everybody back in 2018. So, but we're, before we get too far down another rabbit hole, Bill C-93. So I didn't realize pardons were so freaking expensive. So... Aisha was saying, you know, 
base base of it six hundred thirty one dollars. You probably can't apply until it's been five to ten years after your conviction, and then there's lots of difficult paperwork and extra fees, and just in general, really hard to do without a lawyer or someone with with legal training. What is Bill C ninety three supposed to be doing? I think it's still the Senate, because what I'm reading here, uh, again, looking at. Uh, Bill 93 of the Government of Canada. The act, an act to provide no cost, expedited record suspension for simple possession of cannabis has received royal assent. Once in effect, the legislation will expedite the pardon process. Let's just go with the assumption that it's working right now because they were talking about doing uh, cannabis pardon clinics, uh, they being can. Uh, cannabis amnesty. So the idea is, you know, instead of this $631 and bunch of paperwork, um, the government was trying to make this easier for people to get pardons for simple cannabis possession. And, and cannabis amnesty was involved in, in getting this law into effect. So that's good. So they, you know, they do commend the government on trying, but it sounds like even no fee expedited pardon is not exactly no fee. They calculated with all the extra stuff, because government is always extra stuff and extra fees, still probably going to run you $250. So that's still going to be beyond the means of many people. So it sounds like Cannabis Amnesty is going to run clinics where they will cover the $250 cost of all the miscellaneous fees and basically help you do the paperwork because, again, even expedited doesn't mean easy. So, you know, we commend them on that. That sounds like a, a really good thing that they're working towards. Yeah, I, I guess I, I remember reading, oh gosh, I can't remember the exact source, but essentially I think it was a nursing literature where I don't even, why are, why are we forcing people to go through the system? Why, why, cannot, why can't the government go to their database, figure out the 250,000 that are out there and just get rid of it? Just say, okay, we're doing it for you. Yeah, but I guess we got to pay for that service. It seems it, it. It doesn't seem like the. It is ridiculous. It does seem a little ridiculous. And once again, it's people. It's marginalized people that are affected by these things, and 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 marginalized people don't always um, don't always have the patience to go through processes. And it's sort of. I think it's very much. Um, I think it's very much a a cycle, right? Because. Going back to white privilege, first of all, you know you're you're a person of color. You're picked out. You're picked out by the by the law enforcement officer. You go through the process. They charge you for simple possession. Let's say ten years ago, uh, and now you know you, you've been you've been hindered by this. Whatever else has happened with uh, poverty, education, social determinants of health, you're, you're you're struggling to go through life, and now cannabis is legal. You know, gee whiz, why don't I go get my uh, pardoned? And then you're 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 blasted with process and process and process and and I'm thinking people just screw it, you know? Yeah, and and so to give government a little more credit again, uh, I'm not saying they're not perfect, uh, but earlier on you heard us talk about five hundred thousand people with some kind of cannabis conviction on their file impeding their life. Uh, so it looks like sort of at first blush, the government's estimates are about 250,000. So about half of them 
should be kind of on the face fit eligible for this expedited pardon. Yeah. So that's good. Uh, but <laughs> unfortunately, uh, Aisha says only about 850 people have actually applied. And of those, 300 have already been denied because, you know, not enough paperwork and not, not enough crossing T's and dotting I's and that sort of thing. So um, the government's got a lot of work ahead of them. And unfortunately, it looks like cannabis amnesty does too, because even the, the fast, easy process is neither fast nor easy. On, yeah, on, on the webpage, uh, Canada, cannabisamnesty.ca, they're pretty much saying... Out of out of those two hundred and fifty thousand, five hundred thousand, depending which number you use, five hundred and thirty-six people have been granted. And I guess I guess in in nursing, as a nurse, I'm registered nurse. I'm thinking the government should just say, you know what, let's just do this and just those names, they're gone. Send them all a letter. You're you're, and we've done it for you, right? And and I'm wondering how long would that take. Uh, government employee to sit down at their desk and filter through a database with that information. You would think it wouldn't take long uh, and, and put the initiative on the government because the government has decided that non-medicinal cannabis is a legal substance. So should the government not, I mean, I guess this is what, what, why we have organizations like Cannabis Amnesty, is that the government should just get off their asses and get this done, you know, and just move forward, like except uh, instead of allowing people to work through the process and more anxieties, flags going up. It just seems it just seems cumbersome. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. So not not that we can't come back to cannabis amnesty, but on a slightly different track, you ha have been sending emails back and forth with another section of the government, the the provincial section. Uh, in relation to things like cannabis catering and cannabis food and cannabis events, uh, I, have they have they sent you any kind of updates lately? Yeah, yeah. I think I left it last time that I got a terse email from somebody basically saying that uh, that the um, that the money goes to general coffers. Uh, I sent them back. It says, oh, yeah, we've answered your question by going into this is again by anonymous newsroom. Anonymous, again, no greeting. We've answered the question by going into general revenue. The fee will do exactly what it says below. It will support government pro uh, programs like health, education, etc. Um, so I tried to follow up about that and uh, ask them about the money going to specific programs. And no, they pretty much sent me back to the Liquor Commission, Liquor, Liquor Cannabis uh, Board, um, and it's stalled there. But one of our, um, uh, okay, yeah, the news, this, the newsroom told me that this is managed by Liquor Gaming Cannabis Authority of Manitoba. They do their own media relations. So I, um, so I sent them, I said, thank you very much, but they, they haven't gotten back to me. I asked them to whom am I concerned? Could you please give me some information about successes with the money? It's basically government, government, um, uh, you know, just government sending me back emails saying that they've answered my question. But uh, another fella, uh, you'll remember, um, 
Uh, Stephen Stairs. Uh, Manitoba's loud advocate. Loudest advocate, yeah. We, we did an episode with him. Uh, what episode was that? That was episode 82. He got back to me, and he's been trying to get the government on FIPA, Freedom of Information, and he's also getting the runaround from them. They're not, they're not answering his questions to the point that I think he's doing a rally. Uh, around Manitoba Cannabis Business Needs Your Help Rally for Retailers uh, September 28th, 10 a.m. Manitoba Legislature Join us in demanding an end to the unfair uh, SRF on cannabis And I think that's the um, Social Responsibility Fund Yeah, he's been trying to get the government So he's doing that work Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get back to Stephen at some point When he gets a, a, a proper answer About how our, our taxes are being used By the Conservative government of Manitoba That sounds, sounds like a story worth tracking down So, uh, anything else uh, to say about cannabis amnesty? Uh, that is still not that easy Like it's still it, um, You know, I would recommend everyone go to their webpage They have a very dramatic uh, video uh, about how how cannabis convictions affects people. It's very dramatic, um, and I guess it's just we take things for granted. You know that that cannabis is legal, therefore you know let's party. But unfortunately, it's not. It's affecting lots of people, and it's not that simple. Um, and if you do decide to go get your uh, your pardon, you may be opening yourself up for further uh, problems traveling. It's all rather, it's all rather difficult, and it, and it shouldn't be. You know, I think it goes back. It goes back to how the federal government legalized non medicinal use of cannabis in the sense that they legalized it as if it was something to be afraid of, something to protect us from. Um, and I think, I think everything from there goes with that, with that sort of mentality that, you know, we're going to protect people from cannabis, opposed to saying, gee whiz, we've got this plant that's been misunderstood and actually benefits people. Maybe we should make laws that actually... Uh, demonstrates how cannabis helps people and i think that's where that's the disconnect the government the government feels cannabis is harmful where and comparing it to tobacco comparing it to alcohol when it's completely its own thing and it should not be compared to alcohol and it should not be compared to cigarette you know it's a different entity and uh, i think that's where all these things stem from it's, it's how the government views cannabis Okay, it's been another good one, Kirk. Uh, so I guess I'd say I'm Trevor Shufield. I'm the pharmacist. I'm Kirk Nyquist. I'm the registered nurse. And we're Reefer Madness, the podcast. Check us out. Probably the easiest place to find everything Reefer Madness is our webpage, www.reefermed.ca, and on all the social medias, I think we're at Reefer Madness. Yeah, and, and if you do listen to us, as you are right now, give us a rating. Get on that. Get on that podcast platform and give us a rating. Uh, the more the more interaction that we get from our listeners, the better we get. More listeners, you know. Tell two people. They'll tell two people. They'll tell two people. And so on and so on. Excellent show, guys. It's Renee back here at the studio. And uh, just before we get into uh, Aisha's request for a song at the end of the podcast, um, we always like to acknowledge that we produce our shows on Treaty 2 territory, which is the homeland of the Métis. 
We pay our respects to the First Nations and Métis ancestors of this land, and we reaffirm our relationships. And you'll find that on our on our website as well, reformed.ca. So the request that Aisha has for, for a song at the end of this episode is uh, We Got Love by Tiana Taylor, featuring Lauren Hill. And here it comes. Like the show? Let us know. We're Reefer Madness on Instagram and Facebook, at Reefer Madness on Twitter, or head over to the website at ReeferMed.ca to find out what we're all about and what's coming up next. We got love, love, love. You better believe it. We got love, love, love. You better believe it. in the carriage yet yeah. i got black love and marriage yet yeah. they gonna say you can't have it but i'm like don't kill the messenger we gonna break the stigma up hugs the boost turn the obamas it ain't about where you been where you from what you got is all about love self-love is the best love when you go take that wristband off that petite party been over don't need makeup to dress you up I gave birth on the bathroom floor Just me, Iman, and headphone calls Don't let this life defeat you I hope this message reach you Throw your hands up Play catch with the hundreds Love is the new money I'm just chilling with the homies Home is where the heart is Throw your hands up Play catch with the hundreds Love is the new money I'm just chilling with the homies Home is where the heart is sense of purpose. Those are, they're integral, you know, they're key. Happiness, you know, um, a lot of people define success differently. You know, for me, you can have everything. You can have all the money in the world, 
but if it's not enjoyable, if it's not sustainable. If you can't be a person of integrity while having all these things, what does it matter? What does it mean? Your value is internal. Your value is internal. We got love, love, love. You better believe it. We got love, love, love. You better believe it. is internal. Your value is internal. It is for us. For us old guys, it's uh, it's nice talking to to young to young people whose careers are in front of them, <laughs> and who and who have so much so much uh, you know passion for the cause. Well, I'm thinking to myself as I'm talking to, I'm talking about a, an experience that happened in 1978. You know, you know, way before she was born, yeah. <laughs> possibly before her parents were born. 